Welcome to Sedaris. My name is Dave, one of the pastors here. And uh, we're going to enter into a time of teaching now. We admit we have no idea what we're doing in this world and we need help. So we look outside of ourselves for revelation from God so that he might instruct us and guide us to bring us to life. And so we'll look at that today through the series we're in in the book of Exodus. So if you've got a Bible, grab it, turn to the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible. We're in chapter 16. Um, and so when you get to chapter 16, I also want you to just put your finger there and then turn to John chapter 6. John is one of the four Gospels of Jesus. Gospel um, is used in a number of ways. The, the Gospel is that Jesus Christ came into the world. God the Son died in our place and rose from the dead and now has ascended. We celebrated that last week and sits at the right hand of God until he brings his kingdom in full. It also can refer to a type of scripture, which is a narrative story of the life of Jesus. So John is one of the four gospels, and we're going to actually start today looking at a passage in John that's going to help us actually read Exodus in a fuller way. So we have the luxury, unlike the ancient Israelites, of knowing the fulfillment of God's plan in bringing himself into the world. So we're going to start with Jesus because we believe all of scripture points to Jesus. So we're going to start with Jesus and then we're going to go back and read this, um, what might be familiar, might not be familiar, but this, this story about something that God did in the wilderness with the Israelites that then Jesus explains in full that he's doing for all people at all times. So um, would you just pray with me as we enter into this time of teaching? Father God, thank you for my friends, thank you for the Son, God, that it just uh, reminds us of life and reminds us of your glory and the warmth that you bring into the world by your presence, God. Um, As we experience the Son, would it just um, allow us to experience you? Uh, May we give you thanks for it. May we uh, take in whatever it gives to us so that we might give it out to others throughout this week, that we might be the hands and feet of Jesus. Be with us now as we read this story or these four stories of of how you worked with your people long ago and how you are continuing to work with your people through Jesus now. Just be with us. Open our minds and our hearts to know truth. We just pray against any distraction, any plans that we have coming up for this glorious day. May we just be fully present right here in this moment and we just pray as God's people have Time and time again, come, Lord Jesus, come. Send your spirit to fill this place. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, we're in the book of Exodus, um, and we're talking about God moving us out of one thing so that he might move us into something else. God never just frees us for freedom's sake. He always frees us so that we might do something else. So we've been talking about this over and over again. And last you heard from me was on Easter Sunday as God took the people of Israel through the grave, which was the Red Sea. He parted it. They walked through death, or what would have been conceived as sure death, through the other side to a new life. So we've come now to the other side of the Red Sea, and so we're going to look at the two months from the other side of death to this new resurrected life, this beginning of a nation, apart from their slavery in Egypt, and we're going to look at what new life with God feels like. Spoiler alert, it's not quite as good as one might imagine. There's trouble around every turn, 
So let's look at that. Let's look at that. And I want to look at that actually by starting in the central moment in cosmic eternal history, which is the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's where all things point, all things, we said this several weeks ago, fall into the weightiness of the coming of God the Son into the world. So let's start there, and and some new things might come alive to this old passage about Israel wandering, manna from heaven, miraculous water, birds of flight. It's going to be great, okay? So here we are. John chapter 6, the Gospel of John. John was one of the disciples of Jesus, and he wrote an account of Jesus' life after his death. So John chapter 6, verse 22, says this. This is happening right after Jesus has fed 5,000 people miraculously with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish, and he multiplies it to feed 5,000. So keep that in mind. That's the scene here. Chapter 6, verse 22. On the next day, after the feeding, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks, after he multiplied the bread. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Of course, you'd want to follow the guy that can, can feed 5,000. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Of course, we turn to the things that satisfy the most immediate hungers. Do you not work for food that per- or said Jesus says, "Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal." Then they said to Jesus, "What must we do to be doing the works of God?" Jesus answered them, "This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent." Jesus is pointing to himself. <laughs> So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Okay? What work do you perform? Okay, he's just fed 5,000 people miraculously, but they still want another sign. This is what they say to him. Our fathers, our ancestors, ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he, that's God, gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am. If you've been tracking with us in Exodus, that's an important phrase Because what does Yahweh say his name is? What does Yahweh mean? When Moses says, what should I call you? And God says, call me I am that I am. So Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. 
and all that the Father, gi- Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing that the Father has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Talked about that on Resurrection Sunday. Look at this. Just make a little note here. What's the very next thing after Jesus makes this amazing proclamation that, one, he is God and he is the bread of heaven that brings eternal life and that he'll raise people up to life on the last day. Look at what the Jews do. So the Jews, and that's probably the religious leaders that were amongst them, the Jews grumbled, underline grumbled, about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he, how does he now say, I have come from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, Jesus says. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, Jesus saying, that's me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Your father ate the manna, your fathers, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Not because of the manna, we'll see that today, but they still died. It was a temporary blessing. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, Jesus says, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Some big things. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me... He also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate in the wilderness that we'll read about today, and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, as you can imagine, even in Jesus' days, what are you talking about? Jesus had yet to go to the cross and die. He'd yet to give instructions to his disciples about what this bread and this blood was. People would have been like, this guy is crazy. You know, so anybody just thinks Jesus is a nice teacher, he's telling people to eat his body and to drink his blood, people would have been like freaking out. We come to realize, and we'll celebrate this later, that it's a symbol of Jesus' blood shed on the cross, his body that was broken, and we remember that each week. Because now we understand, because we have fuller revelation. We always need more revelation. God help us to understand. But in that moment, Jesus was saying some very intense things. He was claiming to be God. 
Now, turn back with me to Exodus. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read you a few stories, four in particular, that all happen over a span of about two months, including this manna from heaven that God brings to the people who are walking through a blistering hot desert. You think it's hot today? I mean, Seattleites, you're going to be freaking out today. You'll be like hydrating, get one of those fans, squirt yourself. You're going to be like, oh my gosh, it is so hot. I'm going to go to a movie. <laughs> it's too hot for me. I'm going to get sunburned. I mean, we're talking about the, the Sinai Peninsula. This is like real desert. And tens of thousands, we're not sure how many, maybe hundreds of thousands of people walking in a caravan through the desert. And they're thirsty and they're hungry. And they're asking, God, why have you brought us into the desert? So let's, let's pick it up. Actually, at the end of chapter 15, so this is right after the song of Moses, that they sing in celebration because of God's salvation through the Red Sea. So that's just happened. They're on a high. They're feeling good. Life is good. But things turn pretty quickly. Chapter 15, verse 22 says this. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. There was was probably so much sediment and salt built into the water, you literally it was worse for you to drink it than to not drink it. And so they they named the place Mara because the water was bitter. Verse 24. And the people, look at this, grumbled. You think John doesn't know this story? The same thing that happened when Jesus says, I'm the bread of the life. This is what happens. Grumbled. Ten times in the next two chapters we'll see the word grumbled. The people of God grumbled. And look who they grumble against. Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. That's Moses cried to Yahweh. And Yahweh showed him a log. That's what the ESV says. The actual translation, the better translation would be, he saw a tree, or God showed him a tree. And he threw the tree into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord, or Yahweh, made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to my voice, the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Okay. So, this is the first trial. It's only three days after they're singing this, this this epic worship experience. I probably don't need to tell if you've been a Christian long or you've been living in the in the in the church, you understand this phenomenon. You go to some retreat or you go to the, the women's conference if gathering, and you're gonna be filled with the, the Spirit of God and you'll be praising Jesus. You say, I'll never grumble against you, you're God, I love you. And then it's like you come back from camp and it's like three days later, you're pissed off at God again. And you say, Where are you, God? You're in good company. This is the way the people of God are. They need many a test, many a high, 
but just look. These people just saw the Red Sea parted. They just saw 10 plagues put on the greatest empire. They saw a pharaoh overthrown by God, and yet it only took them three days before they were, I'm not so sure about you, God, anymore. So you're in good company. I'm not saying just go grumble as much as you can. I'm just saying they grumbled at least 10 times here in the next two months as God continually turns bitter things to sweet. And so God says, I want you to do something that's not going to make any sense. And that's why I like the translation tree rather than log. Because anybody, if God says, I'll pick up that log and throw it in, eh, I'll give it a shot. I think, I think it's probably he cut down a tree. That's what I think. God's <laughs> like, go cut down that tree and throw it in the water. It's like, that's not very scientific. But it turns it sweet. And Moses did it. Uh, did it. The blessings of God always follow on the heels of faith, right? So when God tells you to cut down a tree and throw it in, in the pool, and you have no idea why, and you do it by faith, he can turn bitter things to sweet. So there, there could be all sorts of things in your life that God asks you to do that don't make any sense. So Moses throws a tree in the water, it turns sweet, and the people get to drink, and their thirst is quenched. And then verse 27 says this, Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. A couple of things to just point out that are interesting. doesn't seem like that was very far away, so God could have just taken them to Elam first, but he was doing something. He was, again, building their faith, teaching them what it means to trust. He could have just taken them all the way to Elam, 12, palm tree, or 12 springs, 70 palm trees. It's pretty nice. But he wanted to teach them something, so he takes them to the place that becomes known as Mara, which means bitter, to teach them that I am the God that turns bitter things sweet. So now they're in Elam, life is good, and you think of yourself, well, let's just stay here. 70 palm trees, 12 springs of water, seems like a good place. Let's just lock it down, start our new nation here. But look at 16 verses 1. They set out from Elam. And all of the congregation of the people of Israel came into the wilderness of sin, into a new desert. It's like, what's going on? Don't seem to stay very long in Elam. Maybe just a night or two. But, but, but this is like paradise. Why would we leave this? Um, this is the way God works. So if you don't like this, that you don't get to stay with the 12 springs and the 70 palm trees, you're probably worshiping and serving the wrong God. Feel free to leave now. <laughs> it's just, this is the way it goes. Uh, my wife, Allie, and I, um, we moved to Colorado right before we got married, and she was doing nursing school there. She, we, we both had orig- first degrees. I was a CPA, and uh, she was in business, and she had done some ministry, and then we were going back to school. I, was, I had left the accounting gig, and I was going to seminary to train to be a pastor, and she was going to nursing school to train to be a nurse, and so we decided, let's do it in Denver, Colorado. And I, I don't know if you know this, but you know what's going on outside right now? That happens 300 days a year in Denver, Colorado. Life was good. We were students. We worked just enough to get by. We had a uh, uh, ski, ski passes to the Vail Resorts, which means you get like Vail, Beaver Creek, uh, Breckenridge, Abe. I mean, you get like five of the greatest ski resorts in the world for like 
500 bucks for the whole winter. And so we would ski, and it was always sunny, and we had no responsibility, and we were newly married. And, and I mean, it was like Elam. Twelve springs of goodness. We loved our church and our church family, and, and, and it was beautiful. And, and then God put this idea into our heads to start a church, and we said, we'd love to start a church where it's 300 days like this. And everybody's happy when they come in, and life's good. We'll do that. And then this idea began to creep in that, no, God says, I would like you to move back to Seattle, where you're from. I said, excuse me? Seattle? Well, you know, it's 300 days of gray there a year, but here I've got 300 days of sun. I've got all this goodness. It's cheaper here. God, why would you do this? And this idea pressed in on us. Uh, I always talk about it like it's a heavy jacket. It was like I put on the jacket of Denver and starting a church in Denver, and it was light, and I know people in Denver need Jesus, and I'm like, yes, it feels good. And then I put on the jacket of Seattle, and it was like, the problem with the jacket for Denver is like the sleeves are just a little short. I got long arms. The sleeves are a little short. I was like, yes, I can get over that. I just kind of walk around with them shoulders up. But then I put on the jacket for Seattle. It's like, oh, that fits. Oh, no. It's tailored just for me. And I knew. God's calling us away from, in our minds, was paradise. Because he's got something else for us. And he called us to Seattle. Now, I love Seattle. (laughs) It's just like, we're celebrating that there's sun. <laughs> it's like everyone thinks it's Disneyland, okay? So it's like different, okay? This is how God works. Now, he, he, he might call some of you to Denver. I'm not saying like only the people of God are the ones that come to Seattle. No, God can call you anywhere. He call you a sunny place, a hard place. But for us, he called us out of what was comfortable and easy and into discomfort. That's just how God is. He's like, I don't know if I've ever experienced that, what you've experienced, Dave. I've never been called to start a church. Or Listen, you've experienced something of what it means to follow God because each and every one of you has been on vacation. And guess what happens? Vacation ends. Vacation always ends. And when you follow God, your vacations, in the big sense, they always end too. He'll give you sweet seasons, he'll refresh you, he'll renew you, he'll build into you, and then he'll move you on to something else. Because his mission, his kingdom is always moving forward, it's always expanding, it's always growing. There's more people that he wants to reach, and so he might move you into something new. He could move you out of a really good thing to move you into a hard thing, but it's for his glory and your good. And I'd never, I'd never go back. I know that God moved me exactly where he wanted to move me. So this is what happens with Israel. Leave Elam. Why? Because look what happens next. So they set out from Elam, chapter 16, verses 1. And they're now moving into the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Mount Sinai, which they'll eventually get to. That's where God will give them the Ten Commandments and the law. And they'll camp there for quite some time. And this is about a month or two after leaving Egypt. So verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, what did they do? Grumbled. <laughs> what are you doing? We liked Elam. 
And they grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would you have it that we would die in the, uh, by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by, or when we, sorry, would, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for, we have, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So they're thinking back about their time as slaves in Egypt. They're like, at least we had meat and food to eat and water to drink. It wasn't so bad. Why'd you bring us out here just to kill us in the wilderness? Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. That's interesting. Again, God's got some purpose. Of course, he's going to feed them and keep them alive. But his main purpose is so that I may test them. That they will walk in my law, if they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said this to all the people of Israel. And they explained to them what God will do. And, we'll, and I won't read all of it, but we'll continue to read on. And what we'll see is... Um, God rains down from heaven this flaky, um, it explains later, it, uh, later in chapter 16, it says it was like coriander seed, which is white. It was white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So it's just very strange. They didn't have a name for it, so they called it manna. And it was kind of like bread, at least it filled the role of bread in their life. It filled them up. It was enough to give them the energy to move forward. And each morning, there was this dew that would be on the ground, and then it would turn into this, like said it's like flaky white stuff, which then they're like, you know, they know they're supposed to try to eat it. That's quite good. It tastes like wafers with honey. And every morning, that would be there, and every morning, they'd have their daily bread. And then... On, on the day before the Sabbath, which is the day that as we'll get into the Ten Commandments and we'll see God say, I want you to keep the seventh day holy. We'll call it the Sabbath day. Because God, after creating, he rested. So I want my people, after they work, I want them to rest. So on that day, I'll give you a double portion, God says. So take twice as much so that you have food to eat today and tomorrow on the Sabbath so that you don't have to go and harvest the manna on the ground. So you're starting to see all the, the groundwork being laid for the rhythms of life of this new nation. And um, what, what we'll see about this manna is that the manna, it doesn't last long. So God says, go get enough of it for you, about an omer, it says, which says a specific amount. Get enough of it. Don't take any more. Leave some for everyone else. Don't hoard it for yourself and don't take enough for like a few days because you have to trust me, I'll bring you more daily bread tomorrow. Start, starts to get into our mind what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, heart in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Give us just enough. God says, take just enough and trust me, I'll be here tomorrow too. So this is how they ate for 40 years. In the desert, God would provide for them daily. And then on, right before the Sabbath, he'd give them two days' worth. Now, if they, if they took more, there's consequences. It would get very smelly. It would rot, and it would smell up the place. And if you've ever camped with somebody 
who doesn't know how to put their, their garbage away, leaves the milk out or banana peel or whatever, you just know nobody wants, and these guys are camping. Nobody wants to camp with that person. Don't take more than your fill. Don't leave this stinky, rotting, it brings the flies. Don't do it. But people did it, and God rebuked them for it. Okay, so that's what's going on. Manna from heaven. And now, I want to show you something. Even after Moses tells the people that God's going to do this, they've yet to experience this yet. Look at what the people do um, in verse 7. Uh, or sorry, verse 8. And Moses said to them, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread uh, to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, and then Moses says, What are we? And then he said, Moses says, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Okay, so it's very clear that the grumbling was loud and that most people were involved in it, and yet God still says, I'm still going to bless you. So this is good news for us. When you grumble, when you forget about God's goodness, when you continue um, to not trust him, even though he's proved himself over and over again, that doesn't mean you're going to miss out on God's blessing. The people are clearly grumbling. But Moses does something really important here. Moses says, stop grumbling against us. He's talking about himself and Aaron, who are the leaders of the, of the people. What does he say? He says, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord, against Yahweh. There's a word here for us. There's a message that we, we just need to take in and, and let it soak. Um, y'all need to do some work directly with the Lord. If he's asked you to do something, if he's asked you to step into a difficult situation, if he's given a command on your life that you say, that's just too hard, the tendency is for us to find some human messenger of that. Unfortunately, lots of times it could be like a pastor or it could be like the church generally. And, and I'd say to you what Moses says. Take it up with the Lord. This is his plan, his way, his word. I'm just trying to tell you what it says. I'm, I'm trying to give it to you so that you can take it up with the Lord. The Lord has brought them into the wilderness. The Lord has said, this is how I'm going to feed you. This is the Lord. Take it up with him. And it's okay if it doesn't make sense to you and you grumble against him. Just take it up with him. Because then the relationship can grow. But you've got to take it up with the Lord. You can't just take it up with human representatives or people teaching the word. Take it up with the Lord. God, why is this your way? Public service announcement over. <laughs> so, I'm not, I'm not going to read it all, but basically what God said would happen begins to happen. In fact, he also throws in some, some birds. We don't know if that was happening like every evening. It says that a, a whole flock of quail came and, and landed and covered the ground, so they had meat to eat. Uh, I'm not sure if that happened every single day. It might have been more of a one-time to which the Kate Spencers of the world and uh, those who are terrified of birds say, amen, <laughs> this is not like a, a daily thing that birds are going to invade the church. No, that's not what this is saying. 
could be terrifying, though, for all you Hitchcock fans. We don't want <laughs> quail every day. So it might have just been this first day to get them back on the right track, and then it's bred throughout, which t- I say and my son Owen say, amen. Me and Owen, we're carb people. Don't hate. It's just God said daily bread. He didn't say daily vegetables like my son Grayson or my wife. He said bread. It's clearly the Lord's chosen form of nutrition. Okay. So, it's bread, this weird flaky manna stuff. And God says, take your fill, but only what you need for the day. Save some for others. I'll provide for you tomorrow. You'll have what you need. And for 40 years, they have what they need. Now, this is such an important event in the history of Israel that if you keep reading in this chapter, I'll just paraphrase it for you. Uh, Moses kind of throw because he's writing this after all these things have happened, okay? And they've made it through. And, and, and what Moses puts in here is he said, actually, they took a piece of this manna and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant, which sat in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And we'll get to the tabernacle, which is where God dwelt. And there was this called the Ark of the Covenant. And they just put three important things in there. Moses' staff, okay? And one of the things was manna to remind them of this daily bread that God gave them. That's how important this event is. So when Jesus says, I am the manna from heaven, everybody would have known. This is a central story in the history of the people of God, in the history, the history of Israel. So they've got food now, and for 40 years they ate this food until they get to the land of Canaan. Now, jump down to verse 17. I told you there's four trials here, four stories. They come again to another, so that now they've got their food and they continue to move on, and now the congregation comes and they move from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandments of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. Now, they come to another place with no water, it says. Well, we already went through that. We know God can turn bitter water to sweet. No, we're out of water again. We need to learn another lesson. God is testing us still. So therefore the people quarreled this time. They didn't even grumble. Now they begin to quarrel with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? We've been over this. Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us? Okay, this is like weeks later. Hasn't been long. But again, they're thirsty. So you can understand it. They they want they just, they just want water. And so God says, Moses, take some of the elders, go up to this rock, and I want you to take the staff, that staff that parted the sea, and I want you to strike it. And he strikes the rock, and the rock gushes forth fresh water. Again, amidst the grumbling, God provides water. He loves his people. And then you think, okay, finally we're past this. Now we've got water and we've got bread and, and maybe birds. At least once we had a really nice bird dinner. And, and okay, now we've got it. Okay, we're trusting the Lord. And then we get to a fourth trial. Again, all in the first two months of life after the salvation through the Red Sea. And Amalek shows up. You know who Amalek is? The grandson of Esau. Do you know who Esau was? The brother of Jacob. You know who Jacob is? Israel. And Jacob stole his brother Esau's birthright. And and Esau forgave his brother, but the grandson's a little, he doesn't feel quite the same affection 
for the cousins over there. And Amalek is this great, great, great grandson of Esau. And the Amalekites, they attack. They're like a raiding band, like Vikings of the day. And they're coming, and they're going to steal from the Israelites. And the Israelites have never been to war. They were slaves, carpenters, building. And so so God tells Moses, get some of the fighting men. Go out, protect the people. And Moses stands on a mountain overlooking the battle. And he holds up his staff. As long as he holds his staff up, the Israelites are winning the battle. And as his arms drop, they're losing. Clearly, God is the one fighting for them. So then Aaron and uh, I forget who the other crony is, they hold up. Moses is like over 80 years old. He's very old. If you tried to hold up your arms for more than five minutes, war took a while back then. We're not talking like <laughs> just dropping uh, bombs here. Like this took a while. So Moses, 80 years old, is just holding up his arms. He knows the Lord's fighting for them. He's got people holding up his arms, and they defeat the Amalekites. Four trials in less than two months. And this is how verse chapter 17 ends. And Moses built an altar and called the, the, the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. God saves them. So they've gone through lack of water, lack of food, lack of water again, and war with a trained army of bandits. And God shows up each and every time. So what do we learn from these four trials? Well, I've already said the first thing. New life in Jesus, new life with God does not mean a lack of trouble. Trouble is still coming no matter what. People, you could just imagine people were thinking in their mind, if we had just turned the other way, if we had just gone on the northern route, if we'd just gone on the middle route, but they probably took the southern route, they're thinking, if Moses hadn't taken the wrong turn, if we had just gone some other way, if we just made some other decision, we wouldn't have had trouble. I think God wants us to know, following me doesn't mean there's no trouble. Trouble's still coming. Because see, we'd say, have you ever said that? If I had just made a different decision, if I had just chose a different career, I wouldn't have had these troubles. If, if, if I had just chosen a different spouse, marriage wouldn't be so hard. If I had just chosen uh, not to have kids, or my kids were like everybody else's kids. No. Different job equals different troubles. Different spouse, different troubles. Different kids, different troubles. If I only lived in a different city, different troubles. Even Denver. Different doesn't mean no. Different means different. (laughs) And God says, it doesn't matter which way you would have turned, there's trouble. You say, like, well, if I just had enough money, that's, that's, that's our cry in America. If we just had enough money, then we'd have no trouble. Notorious said it. Mo money, mo problems. Lots of money. Lots of problems, okay? Believe the prophets of the age. He, had a, he didn't make it long. Guy was at the top of his game. It doesn't matter. Trouble is coming, no matter what. Which is why Jesus 
tells us this. John 16, later in the book of John, he says, In this world you will have trouble. That's what Jesus says. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So why did Jesus tell us to ask for our daily bread? Why did Jesus say, I am the bread of life? Why did Jesus say, anybody who eats me shall never thirst again? Because no matter how much you eat the night before at the buffet, guess what happens in the morning? You're hungry. Don't matter how much you eat. Hunger comes every morning. Physical hunger and spiritual hunger. We need Jesus every single day. And Jesus says, I'm with you every single day. He says, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will have enough trouble of its own. I'm with you today in today's trouble. You see, the problem with this life is that trouble is around every single corner. And most of us hold our breath, thinking, if I can just get through this, then life will get easy. Just make it through this pandemic, then life will be easy. If I can just make it through college, then life will be easy. If I just make it through this exam, then life will be easy. If I can just get this promotion, work hard, then let me just save you from unmet expectation. It's not getting easier. There's trouble around the next corner too. It's not clean sailing. The waves will come. You don't even know. You can't even imagine the trouble that's coming. So what do you need? What do you need? If that's the case, that's why it's really good to talk to old people. They know this. And trouble's coming. It makes you look for a different kind of solution. And when you know that there's trouble around every curve, that I can't just hold my breath, then you start to look for a God who is also around every corner. Or better yet, a God who will walk with you around each and every corner of life. And that's the lesson Israel needed to learn right after their resurrection to new life. That God is still with them in the thirst, in the hunger, and even in war. He doesn't send them out on their own. He's with them, and he'll show up. So again, Jesus says, not just your physical need, but your spiritual need. There's this hunger that we, eat, we each have that can't be satisfied by food or water or great vacation. It's, it's a spiritual hunger. Uh, in the Alpha Course, which we're doing, we moved it to the fall. In the Alpha Course, it talks about, like in, in Eastern cultures, where rice is a staple, it's like it doesn't matter how much of the other stuff you eat if you don't have rice with your meal. It's like a second stomach, but only the rice actually makes you feel full. But we each have like the second stomach, the spiritual hunger that only can be filled by the presence of God himself. And we'll always thirst, we'll always hunger if we don't let God fill that part of us. And Jesus says, I am that bread. I'm that rice. You can have everything else in life figured out. If you don't have me, you'll always feel hungry. You'll always want more. 
You always try to fill yourself up with all this. You need me. That part of you was made to be filled by me. Only God fills that vacuum. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And anyone and everyone who comes to me and eats can be fulfilled. Not just now, but eternally. That's the great promise. Not just food for the wilderness of Sinai, but food for the wilderness of life and the afterlife and life eternal with God. So we're, we've put uh, these little cups on your seats, and if you're at home, you can grab your elements if you want to participate. Um, and we do this every week to remind ourselves of this, of this truth. This is the bread of heaven. Jesus says, I'm giving you my life and my blood. I am dying in your place, and only if you eat of me will you be fulfilled. So we're going to do that in just a few minutes here. I'm going to pray for us, and then the band's going to come up, and we're going to sing to Jesus. But I, I want you to think about eating of the bread of life. Maybe you've never done that before. Maybe you've thought about it, but you, you really thought, I think I can feed myself. Or I can store up enough, and I, I won't ever be hungry. And, and you're finally coming to the point where you realize, no, I need this different kind of bread. You can take of this today. You rip off the, the top of it and a little wafer. It's a little manna, Jesus manna. And this is, then you rip off the other piece and it's the blood and you drink it. You say, this is the body of Jesus broken for me on the cross. This is the blood of Jesus spilled for me on the cross. And you eat it remembering that Jesus gave his life so that you could have life. And then you remember that Jesus didn't stay in the grave, but he did rise again, proving that he is the true bread come from heaven. He wasn't just saying crazy things. His resurrection proves that he is, I am.